Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to be with you today. If you would grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3. If you are visiting with us today or have just been here for a week or two, you are picking up in the middle of a series in the book of Galatians that we are calling True Gospel, True Freedom. Because in this book, Paul goes through and one of the underlying threads is this great message for you. That God wants you to experience all of his blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the freedom that is attached with that. He doesn't want you to be enslaved in the propensities of sin that we all have. He doesn't want you to be held back because of some of our fleshly desires. That he wants to give you a new life through faith in him. And in that new life comes wonderful types of freedom. And today, as we read, we pick up in the middle of what becomes probably one of the more technical parts of the book, as Paul is talking about grace and the law and the promise of God and the nature of faith and how do all those things all relate together. And so I want to ask you if you would pray with me as we seek God's help. Please pray with me now. Father in heaven, we do indeed need your help. We need you to shape our desires and our thoughts and our minds. We need you to help us to understand what you have for us. We pray, God, that you would encourage us today by your word and that you would give us an increased trust and resolve in you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and for the gift of grace that you give through him. May we take hold of it all the more significantly now. In his name we pray, amen. If you give an inch, they take a mile. That is the motto of every seasoned parent. If you give an inch, those kids are going to take a mile. The other day I decided to give my little kids some gum. Grape gum. But here's the problem. One piece of gum is never enough. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because grape gum loses its flavor rather quickly. Maybe it's because their little mouths will fit two pieces or more, not just one. Maybe it's because our propensity as humans is to look something really good in the face but not recognize that it's really good. Or maybe it's just because if you give an inch, they take a mile. I mean, after all, that is the disposition of some who are tasked with upholding the law. If the speed limit is 25 on Herbert Road, you go 30. And if the speed limit is 65, you go 74. If you give an inch, they'll take a mile. That was the cynical attitude of some of those who thought that the Jewish law of the Old Testament was required to be a Christian, to be a true follower of Jesus, to be a member of God's family. And all this talk that Paul is giving in Galatians 1, 2, and 3 about the gift of salvation being a gift of God's grace that you attain through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and faith alone, nothing added, nothing taken away, just simply faith. No works, no good deeds, 
no law, just faith, a free gift. And the question that arises, you can almost hear it happening in our own minds as we read through Galatians, and certainly from those Judaizers, wait a minute, doesn't this mean that we don't have to do good things? If you give an inch, and, and, and giving grace for free is much more than an inch. If you mean to say that it's truly free, then what prevents people from just taking all the grace that they possibly need and then doing all the sinful things that they want to do because they can just go back to the well of grace again, again, and again. I mean, if you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. And the question dominating the minds of those reading Galatians today even has to be, if grace is a free gift and salvation is by faith alone, do we actually have to obey God? What is my responsibility to the law of the Old Testament? And what, if anything, is my responsibility to the commands, the plentiful commands that he gives in the New Testament? And Paul addresses this tension directly in Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15 through the end of the chapter. And so I want to ask you to follow along with me as we read this morning. And I'm actually going to start reading at verse 14 because he concludes that previous paragraph with a thought that's continued on into the next one. And so this is Galatians 3, starting at verse 14, says this. He concludes his previous thought by saying, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on faith. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. The lingering question for Christians has to do with the timing of God's progressive revelation. You might remember in Genesis chapter 15, God reveals himself to Abraham. He gives him a promise, a promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in the person of Jesus himself, to bless all of the nations through his offspring. And then, 430 years afterward, he meets, God meets Moses on the mountain and delivers the law. The law of the Old Testament. With all of its stipulations and guidelines. And the question for those who were trying to follow God is a simple one. Isn't the law, which came way after the promise, some kind of upgrade? Isn't it true, Paul, that God's promise was superseded by the law because one came first, but the one came second? How do these things relate? And to explain why the law does not nullify the promise that he made to Abraham, Paul uses the analogy of a legal will. Look at verse 15 with me. He says in verse 15, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the word for covenant here is that of a legal will or a last will and testament. And the argument for Paul is this. He says, wills are not changed once they are ratified. If you have two children, a son and a daughter, and your daughter is quite wealthy, but your son is not nearly as wealthy, and in your last will and testament, you decide because of their proportional wealth, you are going to will them a disproportional amount of money. You're going to give your poor son more than you're going to give your rich daughter. When you die... The moment you die, the will is ratified. Even if at that moment the circumstances have drastically changed and your daughter is no longer wealthy, she's just as poor as your son, and they both could use the money equally, the disproportional will still holds true because the circumstances don't dictate change of that will. And the reason why God's promise to Abraham is viewed in this way is because the circumstances of the people of Israel do not change the promise of God. Because he ratified it himself. If the law came, and when it came rather, God decided that all of a sudden that following the law would be the way of salvation. 
he would be going back on a promise, a promise he already ratified, and God doesn't change his mind. He would, in effect, be saying that humanity wouldn't need to be blessed by all nations through a coming Savior. He would be saying, in effect, that people would be evaluated based on their performance, not on his promise. But when God made this promise with Abraham, he ratified it by taking full responsibility for its completion. And so you see in the book of Genesis this incredible dynamic in which God chooses Abraham out of all the people that he could have chosen among the nations. He chooses this one person who brought nothing to the table. And he says, through you I'm going to bless the world. (laughs) All nations, through all time. And of course we know that's in relation to Jesus. And then God takes responsibility for fulfilling that promise. He tells Abraham to get some animals, to cut them in two in an ancient Near Eastern ceremony. Abraham was supposed to walk through the pieces as the one who has all these stipulations attached to him, required to fulfill his end of the bargain, but he doesn't do it. God says, no, I'm going to walk through the pieces. I'm going to make the promise, and I am going to take the responsibility to fulfill all the stipulations with that promise. Regardless of how the circumstances would change. So what does this mean for you? Why is this even important? It means that when you follow the line of Galatians, and you see just earlier in this chapter in verse 9, this continuing thought that Paul is giving you, that you have access to the promises of God in the same way that Abraham does. In verse 9 it says, Christian, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It means that when you put your trust in God, by putting your trust in the specific remedy for our problem or the specific person who gives the blessing, Jesus himself, it means that God engages you based on his promise, not based on your performance. If a wealthy benefactor comes to you And he says that in his last will and testament that he is going to give you a beautiful mountain home in Vail, Colorado. What are you supposed to do in response to that? The only thing that's left for you to do is to believe the promise. He's not coming to you and saying that he's going to give you the home with a bunch of stipulations attached to it, that if you care for him in his old age, no matter what happens here nor there, that then you'll receive this inheritance. That wouldn't be the same type of promise. That would be an agreement of some sort. That would be like a law. For the law to deliver, it must be obeyed. But he's making you a promise. And what do you do with a promise? How is a promise delivered? For a promise to deliver, it must simply be believed. And so it is with you. God can give his spiritual blessings to whomever he chooses. (laughs) 
They're his to give. God can give the benefits of forgiveness and grace to whomever he chooses. It's his to give. God can give salvation to anybody he wants to save. It's his to give. And he promises to give it in this covenant, this legal will with Abraham to bless all the nations through a particular offspring, Jesus. And the way that you have access to that promise is simply to believe it. (laughs) To have confidence and believe it. Now, of course, this begs a very important question. The question then becomes, why do we need the law at all? If God promises free grace, eternal blessing, through faith and faith alone in Jesus, why did he give the law to his people? Is the law actually contradicting his promise? Is it working against his promise? Or is somehow God in his divine wisdom working these things together? And Paul answers this question in verses 19 through 25, and he shows us in doing so two functions of the Old Testament law. Now there are more functions than just two. We'll see another one later in the book, but here we see two functions. And the first function is this. The law shows us our sin and it leads us to a savior. Look at me at verse 19. Verse 19, Paul asks the question that everybody's asking. He says, well, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the questions about angels and delivering the law is a bit cryptic. It's a bit difficult. It's not Paul's main point in the passage. His main point that he's trying to get to in this section anyway is that the law was not given to you or to the people of Israel in the Old Testament to offer salvation. That the law was given to us for the opposite reason, to show us our need for salvation. The law was given to us to show us sin. It puts spotlights on our shortcomings with God. It exacerbates the areas of rebellion in my heart. It puts to words and phrases and even penalty how significant the offense against God is when we sin. It points to a very sharp contrast that in me there's all kinds of things that want to go against God And as such, the law was never meant to save. Doing good works was never meant to save. Complete obedience was never meant to be the way that you're justified before God. Just the opposite is true. And so Paul talks a lot about the law in Romans chapter 7 as well. And he says it in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life, or that's almost seemed, following the law, seemed to promise these best things for me but it proved to be death to me. Because the law shows us our sin and can even prompt us to sin. You know this to be true. You know this to be true in your own life when you see something, a law, a rule, that you 
really don't want to follow and how immediately within you arises the question, <laughs> should I obey it or disobey it? Should I, laws are made to be broken. How many times have you heard that saying? The law can prompt us to sin. Several years ago, there was a high-rise hotel built in Galveston, Texas, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. And in fact, they sank the pilings into the Gulf itself, and they built the structure out over the water. And when the hotel was about to have its grand opening, someone was looking at it, and they thought to themselves, what if people decide to fish outside of their hotel windows? And so they went into every room and they placed a sign on the wall next to the window that said, no fishing outside the hotel window. Well, guess what happened? A bunch of people ignored the signs and now they had all kinds of problems because the person on the fifth floor was fishing, but so was the person on the third floor and their lines were getting tangled up with each other and they were yelling out the window at each other. And people were sitting in the dining room on the dock level and they were seeing fish flopping up against the big picture window because the guy on the seventh floor happened to catch one. And the problem continued to get worse and worse until the hotel manager solved it all by simply taking down those little signs. Because no one checks into their hotel room thinking, I can't wait to fish out the window. The rule initiated the problem. And Paul is saying that the law serves a similar function. It shows us that we are not righteous. And it communicates to us that it is unable to make us righteous. In fact, what the law does is it prompts sin even all the more. And it points us to the need, then, for one who can make us righteous. Jesus, the Savior. And this is what it means in verse 22. Look at it with me. When it says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So that's the first function of the law, is to point to our need. The second function of the law is that of a guardian. And he gives us two analogies to see how this is the case. The first is an analogy of what we might call protective custody in a prison system. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23 says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. To be imprisoned under the law sounds like a terrible thing. Nobody wants to be in prison. Nobody wants to be in custody. But here we see both a negative and a positive reality. It's negative to be held captive, to be imprisoned. But when a criminal is caught and decides to testify against a powerful mob boss for whom he's working, he doesn't get away without any sort of penalty. He's still captive, but he's put into protective custody until the mob boss, that evil boss, 
is caught and is no longer able to exercise retribution against him. Protective custody. Likewise, in the Old Testament, the law of God showed the people of Israel to be guilty. And the law of God today shows you to be guilty. You are guilty before God. But it also preserved their life until the appropriate time when the Savior would come. The law served as protective custody. It was the guardrails of God until the Savior would be revealed. Until, it says, the coming faith. That's not general faith. That's specific faith in Jesus. As the promise of God made manifest would be revealed. So the law serves as protective custody. It also serves as a, as a different type of guardian. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul uses a different analogy right on top of the last one. He says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, that's faith in Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The word guardian here has some historical connotation. It's the word pedagogue. In the Greek world, it was very common for people to have a servant or a slave who was the guardian or pedagogue over their children from the age five or six up until their late adolescence. This guardian was not simply a babysitter, nor was this guardian a tutor. Somewhere in the middle, this pedagogue was one who kept the children from getting into too much trouble by removing aspects of their freedom, by chaperoning them along the way, and by exercising discipline and guidance where it was needed. In God's eternal plan, the law was a pedagogue or a guardian for the people of Israel. It was their chaperone. Until they grew and the coming of faith would be revealed, verse 23. Or until Christ came, verse 24. And at that moment, there was an opportunity for the object of their faith to move from the person of God and his promised provision to the embodiment of that provision, namely the person and work of Jesus himself. And because that is true, the law served not against God's purposes. The law served with God's purposes. It was actually the wonderful flip side to the coin of faith. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to lead to salvation. It was never meant to justify. It was meant to show that we weren't just. But faith, he says, and faith alone... In God's promised provision, the Lord Jesus is what saves. Because God engages you in light of his promise, not in light of your performance. So does that mean that we no longer obey God? Whether that's the law of the Old Testament or the many commands of the New Testament. Paul says that the nature of the law is different now. We don't need the guardian anymore because Christ has come. 
And yet, we still seek to obey God's many commands in the New Testament and those that are still applicable in the Old Testament. But the difference is this. Paul is saying, he's not saying that we shouldn't obey. He is saying that we are no longer compelled to obey because we live in fear of not being accepted by God. Our deeds will not commend us to him no matter what. Our performance will never be enough to stand before him. In the gospel, we see that God deals with us not in light of our performance, but in light of his promise. And that means, then, that you can obey God with gratitude and delight. It means that you can follow God who makes this promise and many more promises to you. It means that we obey God not out of fear, but out of love and desire and out of grateful hearts and out of trust in his promise and the many promises that follow. You can respond to the fact that God engages you in light of his promise instead of your performance because of the nature of this promise. And the implications of this are amazing. Let me just scratch the surface with you today and we'll continue more next week. Verses 26 through 29 show that the great implication of this is that there's no longer a question about who is in and out of God's family based on whether or not you're Jewish or not or a certain color or not or engaged in certain religious rituals or not. The question of who becomes the family of God, who is the offspring of Abraham, who are the heirs of this promise. Verses 26 and 20, through, 20, through 29 give us this truth about our relational position to God changes simply because of faith and our relational position to each other changes because of that same faith. Look at verse 26 and 27. He says this. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on faith. And look at verse 29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So through faith in Jesus, you become sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, at first glance, that might not seem like a big deal to you. But if Abraham is the father of the blessing... (laughs) And all of those who are in his lineage, Jew or Greek, receive the blessing, then it becomes a very big deal for you. Familial identity is passed to you, and since you receive through faith, you become a son or daughter of his. That's another way of saying that you become a son or daughter of God himself. Some of you are wondering if you're good enough. Some are wondering if they've performed enough. But God engages you in light of his promise, not in light of your performance. And the implication that promise for you is that you become a member of his family through this faith in Jesus. 
You become one of his children, and God doesn't reject his children. God embraces his children. God loves his children. God gives his children a bright and eternal future. You think about all the things that you want for your physical children, all the love that you want to bestow for them, all the opportunity you want for them, all the very best things of this life that you wish that you could just give them. God gives infinitely more to his children than we could ever even desire for our own. And I love the expression of verse 27 when he talks about those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism here, of course, isn't referencing that you need to be baptized to be saved. The message of Galatians again and again and again is faith is what saves you. But it does highlight that baptism is an important recognition of that faith. It's the outward sign of that faith. It's like wearing a certain kind of clothing. You know how it goes. That what you wear says something about you. (laughs) When you woke up today, many of you said, I want to look a certain way, which says something about me. If I stood up here today and and preached a sermon in jeans and a t-shirt, some of you would think some things about me. Maybe positive, maybe not. (laughs) If I stood up here and wore a $5,000 suit, some of you would think some things about me. Maybe positive, maybe not. What you wear says something about you. And here, we see that faith and the outward sign of that faith, baptism, is like putting on Christ as your wardrobe. You are seen in him. He is seen on you, the son of God himself, which means that you are a son as well. And here are the wonderful benefits of how this changes the way that we look at other people around us is profound. And verse 28 says, there's neither, because of this, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's no male or female. All of you are one in Christ Jesus. There's a lot more that we can say about that and we will say it next week. Because there are a lot of ways that that verse is misunderstood and misinterpreted, misapplied. There are a lot of beautiful truths found therein for this wonderful freedom we have in our Christian life. But today we focus simply on the promise. On on the nature of God's promise. And we ask the question, do you trust God? (laughs) Do you truly believe that God knows best? That he is the one who stands outside of our human experience and sees and knows and acts in ways that you don't see and don't know and can't act. Do you trust that that's the way that God acts? Have you seen or heard of his many promises and relied on them in the scriptures to you? Because The idea of promise is the key to this part of Galatians, chapter 3. In fact, even the word promise is used eight times in these last 15 verses. And if you're going to believe or trust anything about God, it starts with believing this most fundamental promise. The promise from Genesis 
all the way through history and even to today. The promise is this. By faith you will be justified to God and you will receive his blessing through Jesus. That was the promise to Abraham. It's a promise that's embodied in the coming of the Lord Jesus. There are times when you might not feel like you can trust this promise because your life is hard. There are times when your guilt is heavy upon you and you think to yourself, there is no way that this grace can be free. There are times when you are trapped in sin again and you feel like there's no way out and the promise might feel so distant to you. Donald Barnhouse tells the story of, he says, several years ago a porter took me to my room in a Nesto hotel, which is in Canton, Ohio. He knew me well, and we began to talk about the promises of God. I had not yet given him his tip, and I asked him how much money he had in his pocket. And he counted, and he found that he had $1.19. It was Tuesday, and he would not be paid until Friday. And for the rest of the week, he had to support his family on the money that he earned from tips, which were few and far between. Barnhouse says, so I took out a 50-cent piece and I put it in his hand, saying, I will give you this half dollar. Now how much money do you have? A dollar sixty-nine, the porter said. And after I discussed it with him, I took the coin back and I put it into my pocket, asking him, now how much do you have? But he fell into the trap of faithlessness. And he answered, a dollar nineteen. Now, are you saying that I'm a liar? No. Did I give you the half dollar? Yes. Didn't you tell me it was yours? Yes. How much money do you have? And he smiled. And he said, I have a dollar sixty-nine, but fifty cents of it is in your pocket. It was in his pocket before he left the room. And he had learned a little bit more about the certainty of God's promises and what it meant to be in faith that God would deliver them. God engages you in light of his promise, (laughs) not your performance. And when you trust this most fundamental promise, then you will begin to enjoy and take great comfort in the many other promises of God that follow. But the promise to Abraham, the promise to you, is the promise that comes first. And following that, wow, we could spend the next couple of hours listing the promises of God. Here are just a couple. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. 
Or Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to the, his riches and glory in Christ. Or Matthew 4.4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or Romans 8.35, what shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Or 1 Corinthians 15.58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And the promises continue. So trust him. Let's pray. Father, when the promise feels distant, give us a vision and a resolve and a confidence to believe. God, when our faith might waver, when we are tempted to justify ourselves to you again, remind us of the free gift of your grace through the promise to Abraham of Christ. God, as we desire to know you, to experience you, to enjoy you all the more, may your promises to us be evident in our minds and on our lips producing in us the great confidence and hope of our future. We pray these things for the sake of our good and for your glory.